quiver with children, the blessing of the Lord. Well, Psalm 128, in many ways, is going to pick up on that same theme. It's going to go through into the blessing of an abundant and a fruitful home, but there is much more than just the blessing of a fruitful home in Psalm 128. Uh, and I hope that we'll see that together as we read this psalm. This is the psalm that Luther uh, designated his marriage psalm. And so every marriage that Martin Luther officiated, he read this psalm, at least the first four verses, to the bride and the groom as they stood there in front of uh, any who had gathered to see them married. And he prayed God's blessing upon them and upon their family. Well, as we come tonight, we will see uh, this prayer of blessing not just for marriages, not just for children, uh, but for all of God's people and upon all the Israel of God. And so now as we read together, before we read Psalm 128, please join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing upon our reading and upon our study. Let's pray. O glorious and righteous Lord, this is your word. And so we pray that by your spirit you would open our minds that we would understand it. You would open our hearts that we would believe it. You would open our hands that we would do it. That we would follow you in the ways of righteousness and the fear of the Lord. We pray that you would teach us about our Savior through this passage. That we would see and rejoice in Christ our Lord. Oh, gracious God, make it so for your name's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Now please join me in standing as we give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 128, this is a song of ascent. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless it as we study it together. You may be seated. Well, those of you who know me know that I love Calvin and Hobbes. My favorite comic strip uh, and one of the recurring themes in Calvin and Hobbes is the sheer, unmitigated greed that a six-year-old boy named Calvin experiences every Christmas season. When it turns to December, his mind turns to thoughts of what he can receive, what he can get for himself, normally some form of, of destructive thing like hand grenades and atom bombs. And every year, uh, Calvin expands his wish list by untold pages and he bundles it together and he ships it off somewhere uh, in the North Pole hoping to gain the attention of that man in the red suit. And almost every year he is disappointed. And so one year Calvin takes a different approach. He writes, Dear Santa, last year I did not receive the 15,000 items I requested for Christmas. I can only conclude that your secretarial staff must be a bunch of underpaid and woefully unprepared temps and that my letter was misfiled. To avoid a similar disaster this year, just write me a check for $5 million and I'll buy the stuff myself. 
well, uh, on the other end, on the other end of the gift-getting spectrum, I once watched my grandmother flat out refuse a gift that was given to her that she was sure uh, was too nice for her. It came in the form of a, of a piece of jewelry on Mother's Day. And most of us, when we receive something that is beautiful, that is, is lavish, we know how to feign humility. Oh, you shouldn't have, we'd say. I, I couldn't possibly accept something like that. And all the while, we're really secretly waiting for that reassurance that we're worth every penny. Uh, knowing my grandmother, that's not what happened. My grandmother was a very simple woman. She spent most hours of most days mostly in the kitchen. And she was sure when she opened this gift uh, that she would never have a chance to wear and that she certainly did not deserve the ring in that tiny box. And so she refused. She simply didn't accept it. Well, our psalm today is about God's gifts for his people. The biblical word for God's gifts is blessings, and it, it's the thought that dominates this passage. In six verses, it shows up four times. It's everywhere, reminding us that God loves, he delights to give good gifts to his children. But the reality is that sometimes we fall into an unbalanced relationship with God's promise to give blessing to his children. Perhaps we do it because we know the way that passages like this one often get abused. We hear our missionaries come back and report about, about their labors in places like Africa or, or Latin America. We hear the way that the prosperity preachers are going into rural places, into the poor villages, and they are wreaking havoc on the faith of simple Christians there. And they go in and they preach false promises of wealth and health and physical prosperity. They go in and they line their own pockets, teaching the poor that if they have enough faith, God will bless them with super abundance, more than they can imagine all the possessions they could ever want. Well, then again, maybe we get caught by looking at our own lives and then looking at this psalm and this beautiful picture that we see here as understated as it might be, this beautiful picture and concluding that this psalm must be unrealistic. Can you imagine work that's fulfilling, a smiling spouse and, and growing happy children gathered around the dinner table? And we look at this passage and we think to ourselves, if that's what God's blessing looks like, maybe it's too good to be true. Some of us don't know what to do with God's promises to bless his children because we've only ever been exposed, we've only ever seen the examples of, of entitlement on one hand or cynicism on the other. We've been exposed to false teaching that tells us on one hand that, that God owes you something. Or perhaps on the other hand that God is very angry and he's probably out to get you. But the good news tonight is that if you are in Jesus Christ, the God who owes you nothing actually loves to bless you with more than you could imagine. Tonight, as we, as we study this psalm, as we look at, at God's blessing, I want to think together about God's promise to bless his people. And the first thing you need to know about God's blessing is that God blesses those who walk in the fear of the Lord our first of two points, that God blesses those who walk in the fear of the Lord. 
And one of the things that, that biblical scholars, Old Testament scholars especially, love to do is they love to put Scripture in different categories. They will look at, at chapters and verses and break them down according to, to features that they share together. They'll put them in different buckets to try and figure out the particular bent of a particular passage. And, and it happens all the time with all kinds of passages. It happens a lot with psalms. You know, as you go through the Psalter, that some are, are thanksgiving psalms, where we're praising the Lord. Others are lament psalms, where we're, uh, we're crying out to God from the depths of despair. Other times, when we're calling down uh, God's judgment upon our enemies, those are the psalms of imprecation. And then there is uh, this other category that Psalm 128 is universally assigned to, no matter who the scholar is. It's assigned to this category of a wisdom psalm. It's a wisdom psalm, and that means that it fits into a sort, of, a sort of crossover genre. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. I don't know what kind of music you all listen to, but maybe over the last 20 years or so, you have noticed this sort of emerging fusion of rap music with country music. We normally think of those things as, as polar opposites, but over the last several years, several decades, they've been picking up influences from one another, and there is now this entire corner of the music industry that is putting out songs and making lots of money with songs that have a little bit of twang and a little bit of thump. And if that's what you're into, good for you. I hope you enjoy it. But you need to know that that is a crossover. It takes a little bit of this over here and a little bit of that over there, and it mashes them together, and that's what's happening with this psalm. It is a wisdom psalm. At the same time that it, it sings like a prayer, it also preaches like a proverb. This is a, a wisdom psalm. It tells us, like the Proverbs do, how life ought to be lived, and also what the outcome of that life is likely to be. In fact, this psalm uh, contains and, and features the very first principle of biblical wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, here's a psalm that's pointing in that direction. Psalm 128, verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. In case you missed it, it shows up again in verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now you know, at least I hope you know, that the fear that this passage is talking about is not a fear that's based on terror at the thought of who God is and what he might do. There is a fear like that in the Bible, by the way. But it's not the fear of those who know him, it's the fear of those who deny him. Fear that's based on terror, fear that wants to hide from God and from his glory, from his wrath. That's the fear that characterizes those who deny him and, and refuse to hear his word, refuse to trust his promises refused to come to his son in order that they might be saved. And Revelation chapter 6, verse 16 tells us, In the last day when the Lord returns in judgment, those people who live now without a thought for God will be terrified. And they will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks, it says, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So there is a fear marked by terror. But this is not what this is speaking of here. That's not what's in mind. This is not a fear in Psalm 128 that drives us away from the face of God, but rather a fear that draws us near to him, near to his heart as a father. This is fear in the form of reverence. It's a heart attitude. 
The way the believer tries to, to orient their lives around God's word at the center, it is a, an overarching orientation that we want to please God in the things that we desire, the things that we think, the things that we say, the things that we do. And that's why verse 1 makes this a matter of action as much as it makes it a matter of attitude. Notice that those who fear the Lord are also those who walk in his ways. It implies a sort of movement. There is a, a lifestyle of obedience contained here in the first verse. And God in his wisdom has decided that there will be a way of obedience that will open into a life that is full of peace and joy in the Lord and God's blessings. Now hold on a minute, though. Because that doesn't mean that this is some sort of transactional entitlement. That's where we can begin to go wrong in thinking about God's blessing for his people. Truth is, most of us are legalists at heart. And God presents us with something that sounds like cause and effect. And we go, I know what to do with that. It's about fear of the Lord. So I'll have to make sure that I'm fearing the Lord because my obedience, my walking in his ways, my fear of him, that will be the catalyst that sets off the chemical reaction whereby God will pour all sorts of divine blessing all over my life. I know how to work this. So we get wrapped up in the anxiety of, of examining our obedience and of maintaining our obedience because after all, if God is going to do his part, I've got to be doing mine. If I want to expect God to bless my life, I've got to be walking the path of victory and faith because then God's blessing is guaranteed. Well, that's how the prosperity preachers talk. As if any of us could enter into some sort of quid pro quo with the God of the universe. As if, as Paul says in Romans, any of us could give him a gift in order that we ought to be repaid. Thankfully, the God of Scripture is far too merciful to allow us to interact with Him and to deal with Him on those terms. Think about it. Who is it that walks in the fear of the Lord? Who really walks in His ways? Who lives their daily life with that overabundant orientation to please God in thought and in word and in deed? one sense, we could read the scriptures, we could read our hearts, and we could say, nobody does that. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes, says the psalmist. We could say, in one sense, that, that nobody does that, and yet the psalm is writing a blessing upon those who do. And so, who are the people who walk? in the fear of the Lord, who want to, to please the Lord in all that we think and desire and do. Well, those who walk in the fear of the Lord are those whom the Lord calls to himself. Consider Abraham. At this point in his life, still, still called Abram, and he's kicking around Ur of the Chaldeans, doing who knows what with his life, and God shows up, and he calls him. He says, follow me, Abram. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Go out from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And we say, well, there's the way of blessing, isn't there? 
There's a road, there's a path to get there. It's somewhere to the west of where Abram is now. And what he's got to do is to set himself in that path and start walking if he wants to have that name and that blessing and to receive all the things that God has for him. And yes, that's true, but who paved that road in the first place? Who put shoes of faith on Abram's feet in order that he would walk in the ways of the Lord? Have you ever considered that the greatest blessing Abram received was that voice of God pronouncing blessing on his life, calling him out of darkness, leading him to himself, setting his feet on the path of obedience? Was that what Abram deserved? <laughs> was it what he'd been working for? Was it what he expected from his life of, in Ur of the Chaldeans? What about you? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's where we're walking. Every one of us according to our own way. Dead in our sins and trespasses in which you once walked. All of us by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, so that by grace you have been saved. And down to verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear that connection there between verse 1 and verse 10? Here's the way you were walking. Here's what Christ has done. Here's where you're walking now. And there's a path of obedience. There is a way of blessing. There's a pronouncement of how the Christian life works best and what you ought to expect as you walk in that way. But who put you on that path to begin with? Who gave you life and forgiveness and who gave you good works to walk in them? Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways, full stop. We don't need any peripheral blessings to make that first verse true. We don't have to go any further. It is a blessing if you know the Lord, if you fear the Lord, if you walk in His ways. If that is true of you, He has blessed you. He has called you. He has given you that desire to please Him. That's the first blessing. Are you walking in His way? Does your heart of reverence draw you near to God instead of away from Him? And do you stop to consider that God's blessing is the life of faith that He's put you into in the first place? Well, God blesses those who walk in the fear of the Lord. But as they walk with Him, what we find is that He gives peripheral blessings, actually. Overabundance, more than we could imagine, more than we could ask or think, says Paul again in Ephesians. And as we walk with the Lord, His blessings begin to show up in daily life. And this is our second point, and it covers all the other specifics in the rest of the psalm that God bless, God's blessings show up in daily life. Now, uh, truth be told, as you look at the blessings in this passage, they're pretty modest. I think intentionally so. There, there's nothing in this passage about overflowing bank accounts or, or internet fame or even all of your favorite politicians winning their elections. This is much simpler than that. 
this psalm envisions a household with peace in the family and enough food to fill the mouths that sit around the table. I think it is intentionally simplistic, intentionally idealistic, so it draws our attention to the things that are at once the most basic and the most profound blessings that the Lord gives to his people in this life, earthly blessings. And so we find in verse 2 that God blesses his people in their work. Verse 2 again. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Now don't overlook the fact that in the garden of paradise, the primary calling of humanity was to work, was to tend the earth, to keep it. God has created us to be people who work, and some people work with their hands, other people work with their minds. Some people take wrenches, other people click spreadsheets. Some people work in the home, some people work out in society, but we're, we're created to be workers, to be producers, because God loves order, and he loves dominion over the earth, and he loves creativity, and so he's made us to be people who work and who produce. But when sin entered the world, work became something different. It became more difficult. It became less productive. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the dust. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. There's a curse there in Genesis 3 on our labor. And it's a curse that has not yet been lifted. Notice the pattern. The first couple walked in their own way instead of the path of obedience. And so down to today, our vocations we find to be burdensome and unfulfilling. It doesn't matter how wonderful your calling is. You could be a pastor of a Presbyterian church, and you could still find times where you feel like, my work is burdensome and unfulfilling. And everything else that you do, we're able to feel that way, to experience that, and we're able to find that the distraction comes easy, and diligence is so hard, it's almost painful. But the Lord is telling us, as you walk in my ways, I will make it go well with you. as you give yourself to godly fear, to biblical wisdom. As you work 40 honest hours, I will give you 40 hours honest pay. I will make sure that you are provided for, that your needs are taken care of. And from time to time, actually, I'll even make it feel as though the labor that you have to do is the blessing it was always meant to be. And so God blesses his people in their work. He also blesses his people in their families. This is verse 3 with this flattering image of a wife like a fruitful vine and children like olive shoots around the table. And obviously the picture here is, is of this abundant growing family. And folks, we shouldn't think too little of that. I don't know where it's come from, but for some reason this is one of the promises in Scripture that modern evangelicals aren't really sure we want anymore. Maybe we're, we're secretly afraid that if we take this kind of promise seriously, that we say fruitfulness actually in, in scriptural terms is a really good thing, and I should pursue those things. We're worried that we're going to end up on a, on a reality TV show with 19 kids and counting. But that's not what this is about. Charles Spurgeon said in a, a previous century, and nothing has changed since the 19th century, by the way. Charles Spurgeon said in a previous century that if the Lord fills a marriage with children, the parents must not look upon fruitfulness as a burden, but as a blessing. So should it be. 
But the Lord chooses to bless you and your family in that way. And actually, there's more to these verses than a house full of children. The, the vine in Israel was the kind of thing that made a farmer doubly happy. He was happy the first time when the fruits came in, and he got to taste of the sweetness of the harvest. But then he continued to rejoice as it became wine, and as it aged, as it mellowed, as it, it added a certain richness and sophistication to his life. It's no wonder in Scripture the, uh, the language of tending to a vineyard is often used to, uh, to speak of, of marital happiness, joy between a husband and a wife. And then on the other hand, the olive tree speaks of abundance and of longevity. All around the Mediterranean, there are these olive trees that are old and they're gnarled and they look half dead, but they've been producing olives since well before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And they're still going strong. They just keep on producing. And while they're producing, uh, the roots send up shoots all around the tree like a tiny olive forest around the base of the tree. In fact, if you, if you learn a little bit, as I did this week, thank you, Google, uh, as you learn a little bit about, uh, about how to grow olive trees, you find that if you were to take a pitch of a raw olive uh, and to germinate it and plant it, it would probably revert to a wild variety and you wouldn't get much out of it. The way to grow olive trees is to take those plantings, any one of them, any one of the, the shoots that come up, and to, and to tenderly care for it and cultivate it and transplant it, and you can start that process all over again. That's the idea here. The picture in, in verse 3 is, is not just about the fruitful home, but about the enjoyable one. It's a marriage where the husband and the wife live in harmony because they're walking in paths of righteousness together. It's a home where the children carry on a legacy of godliness that they've received from their parents. It's a home where every relationship and every prospect is infused with the protective blessing of walking in the fear of the Lord. Well, perhaps we need to state the obvious about this promise. The obvious is that every Christian is called to work in some way. Not every Christian is called into marriage. And not every Christian couple will have a house full of children or even any. That's why we're so thankful when we turn to the New Testament. And it begins to teach us something that we don't see very often in the Psalms or in the Old Testament. It begins to teach us the value of singleness for those who have that gift. It teaches us the dignity of being spiritual fathers and mothers even if we never have any biological children. So this psalm is, is not saying that if your home doesn't look exactly like Psalm 128, then you must be a second-class believer. That's not the point at all. It's simply holding up one beautiful example of God's daily blessing upon his people and upon their families. It's simply calling us to praise the Lord for the blessings of sweetness and faithfulness that he works into our homes. And so the Lord blesses his people in their work. And he blesses them and their families. And, and lastly, he blesses them in believing community. The reality of, of God's blessing is that they're almost never meant just for the person who receives them in the first place. God gives his blessing to his people in ways that are intentionally extendable, that, that can go forth beyond the borders of, of our own homes and of our own families and of our own possessions and our pocketbooks. That was God's aim with Abram 
He blessed him in order to make him a blessing, in order to bring goodness and hope to all the peoples of the earth. And the particular blessing through Abram was the coming of Jesus Christ, this child of promise to bring, uh, to bring salvation to the world who would be born of the seed of Abram. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And that's how God's blessings work. To be certain, the blessing of the coming Messiah is one that is not going to be repeated. There is only one Savior. It's not going to happen again, but it shows us God's paradigm for blessing people. He starts small. He calls individuals. He calls them and he leads them on paths of righteousness for his own namesake. He blesses the work of their hands. He blesses the their families because he's the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for generations. He starts with small promises and daily blessings to undeserving people, and then he gathers those undeserving people into a community of believers to fill and to infiltrate and to evangelize the world. Of course, the word for that community in the Bible is the church, the sons and daughters of Abraham, the Israel of God. And so in these last two verses of Psalm 128, this psalm prays a benediction upon the church. It asks the Lord to make his blessings like the ripple in a pond when you drop a stone in the middle. And they just begin to expand, and, and before long they fill everything. The Lord bless you from Zion. That's where it starts. It starts in the Temple Mount. It starts where God is pleased to meet his people. It starts in the Holy of Holies, where nobody could go except the high priest once a year, and him with the blood of sacrifice. It starts above the Ark of Covenant, between the cherubim, at the mercy seat. It starts where the priest would bring and sprinkle that blood, and it would speak of atonement and forgiveness. That's where God's blessing starts. And from there it moves outward. The Lord bless you from Zion, and by the way, may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. May the Lord extend his blessing to the whole people who've gathered together to worship the living God. And then reading these Psalms of Ascent and perhaps imagining these traveling pilgrims coming up and going away from Jerusalem for the yearly feast. They come to Jerusalem to receive the blessing of the Lord. And then, then they go back to their families. Then they go back to their fields and their work. And they carry that blessing with them. And it ends with the cry, peace be upon Israel. And that's the way the Lord works. He blesses by word of mouth. He blesses through personal contact. He blesses inch by inch and heart to heart. He gathers his people into a community called the church so that we can remind one another of the undeserved blessings that God gives to his children. He gathers us together so that we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ drawing near. He gathers us together so that we can stir one another up to love and to good works, so this path of obedience may continue. Dear friends, I hope you know the blessing of the Lord today. I hope you know the fear of the Lord and of all his daily mercies in your life. And if you do know, I pray that you would bless somebody else by telling them what the Lord has done for you in Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? 
Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your abundant blessings in Jesus Christ. They come in no other way but through the Son you have given into the world, the Savior you have sent to draw your people from every tongue and tribe and nation and to make them one body in him. We thank you for your blessings which are yes and amen in Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us hearts of faith to believe and to receive all that you have for us and to trust you that you are for us in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear God's good word for you, his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Aside from the announcements in the bulletin, uh, which I would encourage you to see and to, and to check out, um, two other things. One, 